This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You've failed, but you've still, you're still engaging with the game. You're still engaging with the setting. Jared's example is if you watch Ghostbusters, they fail almost every role in that, in that movie. This fail and they fail. Indiana Jones is the same thing. In the Raiders of the Lost Ark, he when he he's going to switch out the idol for the for the thing of sand, he fails. Um, mm-hmm. He's going to jump across the pit, he fails. He tries to bluff his way past past Balash, he fails. You know, and and it's all this series of of failures. But he's still Indiana Jones, and he's still awesome because he's describing how he fails. What drives John Wick to create landmark games like L5R and 7C? Does he still agree with everything he wrote in Play Dirty? What are the two things he thinks every GM should watch to become a better storyteller and game runner? I bet the answers will surprise you. Recently, we just streamed our first episode of our AP of 7C with Zoe from the writer's room as the guest GM and John played with us. Watch how John plays 7C. The link is in the show notes. This and all of our content is made possible by our generous supporters on Patreon. A big thanks to our most recent patrons. Georges Dubas, Feeling Good Lewis, Andrew Lear, Nick Sayer, Joe Slentz, and Jesse Watson. Your support and support of all of our patrons allows me to bring content to you every week. Okay, it's time to sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with John. Do you love to unplug and play games around the table? Greetings, friends and floorheads to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we talk to the Origins award-winning designer John Wick. John is best known for Legend of the Five Rings role-playing game and the 7C RPG. He has created and contributed to a long list of tabletop games. So John, welcome to the third floor. Well, thank you for inviting me. So John, I've got to ask the obligatory question that I'm sure you are absolutely tired of answering, which is your gamer origin story. Um, I'd like to know, you know, at what point did you discover tabletop gaming that you could take some dice and a piece of paper and pretend to be other people? Well, Ed, that's a uh, there. There's actually two versions of this story. Uh, the first one was uh, before uh, the first experience I ever had with role playing games was a bunch of kids who were two grades older than me. So I was like in the second or third grade and they were out on the out in during recess uh, playing this game called Dungeons and Dragons. They didn't have books. They didn't have dice. They didn't have anything. All they they had two guys 
and a and a dungeon master, and the two guys would fight. Uh, and by fight, I mean they would narrate their fighting moves, and then the G, the game master, the dungeon master, would arbitrate between them which move actually worked. Interesting. And I was fascinated by this, and I wanted to play, and they were like, oh, you're too young to play. Um, and uh, eventually I, I convinced them that I could play, even though I didn't do very well, but it didn't matter. I was I was playing this cool game and that was my first exposure to like anything right um, but then a few years later i was it was 1981 or 1980 one of the two and i was uh living in georgia and i went to spencer's gifts <laughs> and i had ten dollars in my pocket and i found a copy of the call of cthulhu role-playing game look at you and it was marked down to ten dollars from thirty dollars because they had ordered it by mistake or it got sent to them by mistake they didn't know what it was and they were trying to get rid of it and so i I said i have (laughs) yeah i had spencer's (laughs) gifts and i was like i have ten dollars and i didn't have enough money for tax and they didn't care they just took the ten (laughs) dollars and gave me the thing and that's how i got my first tabletop role-playing game. I read through it. I had no idea what it was. I recognized Cthulhu because I had read um, The Outsider and Others. Nice. Uh, from uh, That was put out by Arkham, Arkham Press. Uh, 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 yeah, Arkham Press. And I had read the Call of Cthulhu short story. And so I recognized that. And I knew what that was. And then I read through the book and I realized this is a storytelling tool. <laughs> this is a way to justify me scaring the pants off my friends <laughs> and them signing up for it, right? So, and and uh, so the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game really informed me, because I think your first role-playing game really informs you of what role-playing games are and what they can do and what they can't do and things like that. And one of the most important lines in the original Call of Cthulhu one was the rules are secondary to the goal of scaring your players. (laughs) And I took that to heart. And so when I started running other role playing games, that rule carried forward with me. It's like the rules are a means to get an emotional response from the players. Yeah. And so from that from that point of view, that kind of informed everything that I've done with role-playing games. So I'd be interested in John. I mean, obviously that's, you know, that story is the beginning of a much longer story, which we're going to get into different, you know, parts of that. But looking back on it now, um, do you have a sense of what it was that got your hooks that early? Um, Was it, was it Call of Cthulhu or was it some other games? I mean, at what point were you just like, look, this is, this is something I'm going to love for the rest of my life. My, my friend Jared said once uh, just a little bit ago, we were talking and Jared is the designer of games like Octane and uh, and uh, uh, the best Ghostbusters role playing game called Inspectors, nice. and and a whole bunch of a whole ton a whole ton of other games. It's an old friend of mine, and he once said, "This is the medium I choose to express myself." Mm-hmm. And I've called role playing games a literary medium for a long time, and I kind of borrowed. Uh, Robin Law's statement that a role-playing game is the only medium in which the author and the audience are the same person. And I like to correct Robin and say, no, that's fan fiction. Uh, but, <laughs> but other than that, um, and I, and I also like to say that I like to expand on Robin's definition and say that the audience includes the other players, but he, 
you know, it's like, well, yes, of course. Right. <laughs> um, and his was a little bit more concise. <laughs> yeah. His is a little more concise. Well, that's the difference between Robin and me. He's concise. Right. <laughs> right? And, uh, uh, so anyway, the, the, and, and, and I had read, um, Umberto Eco's name of the rose. Wow. Nice. Uh, way back in, uh, pre or college. I read it in college. And, in the name, the postscript to the name of the rose, he says the ultimate murder mystery would be where the reader discovers that they're the killer. God, I don't think and, I remember that. Wow. And my immediate thought was, you can only do that in a role play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if if Umberto Eco validates <laughs> role playing games as literary, you know, then then we're in the clear. <laughs> That's pretty big guns right there. Yeah, I got a big, big gun guns. on my side. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So um, going back then, you see, you discover Call of Cthulhu, you start gronking on that. Um, what was the probably the next big game you think about um, as, as a player or as a GM that really had an impact on you? So in the Call of Cthulhu box, there were, hey, do you like this product? There are other Chaosium products. And so I got Pendragon and I got Stormbringer. And those games really use the same system really informed me on like pets. I was a big fan of Michael Moorcock. So Stormbringer, I'm in, I'm, I'm just totally in. Uh, I was a huge fan of, of the Arthur myth. So P Pendragon, I'm totally in right. That that's, that kind of covered me for that. And those games, especially Pendragon, uh, which I, I like to call with a little hyperbolic sweetener on the top, that it's the perfect role-playing game. I've heard that from more that than one pen, person. Yeah, Pendragon, if if the goal of a role-playing game is to use mechanics to emulate the source material, the tropes of the source material, I cannot think of a role-playing game that does that better than Pendragon. Wow. Um, there are other games that do it equally well. There's like the Doctor mm -hmm. Who role-playing game, which has the perfect initiative system for playing Doctor Who. Um, and and uh, there, there are other games that do that. But you find out when you talk to the designers that they will say, yeah, I learned that from Pendragon. Wow, no kidding. Because in in Arthurian stories, knights go mad and throw off their armor and run naked in the woods and disappear for a year. That's a mechanic in Pendragon. That's so cool. The um the the you're at a tournament and the lady that you have the secret crush on that she knows you have the secret crush on uh puts the little puts the favor around your arm and wishes you good luck and you become inspired and now you can do almost inhuman things. That's a mechanic in Pendragon. That's cool. You know. Um and what's more is that Pendragon taught me that what's most important on your character sheet is what your character believes. Mm-hmm. And what's important to them. And that came from Pendragon. It's on your character sheet. These are the things your character believes. These are the things your character loves. These are the things your character hates. And they are mechanics just as important as strength and intelligence and wisdom, and which is what your character does, right? But what your character believes and what your character hates and loathes and fears and all those things are equally important. And if they aren't on your character sheet, they don't matter. Yeah, that's a good point. That that was the big thing that I put, took away from the Chaosium games was that, um, and it's a story that that my buddy Jess Heinig talks about when he was the line developer for Mage, the White the White Wolf game. Mm -hmm. uh, he tells me a story about how um, in first edition Mage, there's this thing called resonance, which is how does your magic feel? 
So when I use magic, the room drops 10 degrees. When you use magic, everyone smells oranges. That's cool. Right? So that's in first edition mage. It wasn't on the character sheet. So nobody used it. Interesting. And then when second edition revised came around, Jess put it on the character sheet and people came to him and said, that's a great new mechanic (laughs) because he put it on the character sheet. So it's real now. Right. Well, when you think about it, John, uh, every time I get a new game, the first thing I do is go to the character sheet because it just to your point, it informs so much about what I'm about to digest and what I'm about to read. And then the second thing you read is the character creation. Right. Um, Before you read any other rules or anything. So um, what's interesting to me, John, is. You know, you picking up games, you, 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 you finding games that you love and you find fascinating. I did the same thing, but you did something different. You found yourself saying, I want to contribute to this. I want to do more. I want to, I want to, I don't want to just consume. I want to create. And I, I wonder whether you remember kind of when that happened, obviously beyond creating at the table as a GM. It happened when my friend, uh, Jim and I were reading over the brand new published Dragonlance role-playing game. And it was, you know, an expansion for D&D, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, but this is when it clicked for me. I was reading through it with him. We were at his house. I was spending the night and we were looking over it. And I was looking at um, the rules for, because there wasn't any rules for paladins, but there were night rules for Knights of Salamnia, right? And I looked at that and I went, Someone made this up. <laughs> and that's when it clicked for me, right? Yeah. And I think that it's a, it's, I know this because, um, uh, it, it's the big secret of world building and game design and all these things is that we're just making this up. Yeah. Now we're using guidelines to help us make informed decisions when we make things up, but, it was at that moment that I went, oh, if somebody else can make this up. So could I. Could I make this up? Could I? Funny? So my first attempt was a Tron role-playing game. Nice. So my first attempt, it failed miserably. It was awful. <laughs> it's a terrible game. No one should ever, ever look at it. It's really bad. Used a D11. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but uh, since then, what I and what I had been doing as a GM was I was tinkering with systems. Got it. And uh, and and it started with me, with my Call of Cthulhu experience of, if a rule gets in the way of scaring the players, ditch the rule. If a rule helps you scare the players, then lean on the rule. And so I was like ignoring different rule systems. It's one of the reasons that I completely ditched alignment from D&D. Right. Because my friends all wanted to play D&D. And I'm like, okay, if we're going to play D&D, then there's some rules we're going to we're going to ditch. We're going right. to ditch alignment because it's way too easy for you guys to go. Okay, we're going to use alignment to determine who we have to talk to before we have to before we try to kill them and take their stuff as opposed to we can just kill them and take their stuff. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, you know, I know that that's a I know that that's a uh, uh, the murder hobo trope is a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason because we all went through that phase. We all went through. I went through it. I went through the, the oh, we get to kill these things because the game says they're evil, right? And so, uh, it's just some of us grew out of it. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting to me, John, you, you know, you, you've mentioned fear a couple of times and that desire to, to invoke that emotion in your players and how that, you know, was something that you came across very early with uh, your mm-hmm. Spencer Gifts uh, Call of Cthulhu. Um, but it sounds like you then you mentioned you carried it on and forth. So I guess two questions. One, would that have happened if Call of Cthulhu wasn't your first game? Or do you think that it, it just it was a happenstance and um, that works forth? Or is it a matter of that's just a great emotion to, to go at the table? What's your angle and our understanding of that? Well, it, anybody who designs a, a role-playing game designed to a horror role-playing game will tell you that fear is really difficult. Yeah. Because the immediate response is to inject humor. Um, whenever people are afraid, they will inject humor to try to downplay the fear. Yep. And so maintaining a sense of, of horror or a sense of dread um, is, and which are different emotions, right? Terror, horror, dread, they're all different things. But maintaining those and balancing those out is incredibly difficult. And because I think Call of Cthulhu was the first game that that I got that helped me do that, it really informed me as a GM as how do I maintain the tone of the game and that gave me a sense of, of because like in a lot of the, a lot of games, everybody that the cliche is everybody quotes Monty Python. True. And I went to go see Spam a lot, and let me tell you, Americans quoting Monty Python isn't funny. It's not. <laughs> Never has been. <laughs> it, it's it's just not the only funny part of Spam a lot for me. The only funny part that part that I laughed at was the "You Gotta Have Jews" song, <laughs> which is so so. So Eric Idle, Mighty Python, it's so inappropriate. Yeah. And yet a celebration of the inappropriateness. Yeah. Right. Yep. And 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 it's good hearted inappropriateness. Mm-hmm. It's not mean. It's not, you know, vulgarity doesn't have to be mean. Right. I think I it's one of the things that that Mighty Python taught me. But anyway, so you, you're playing D&D and everybody's calling Mighty Python all the time. And then you go to play Call of Cthulhu and they try to do the same thing and you have to shut it down. Right away, you got to be like, no, you don't get to do the Mighty Python here, right? So there, there's a lot of, as a GM running a horror game in general, you have to juggle a lot of things that the mechanics don't address. So so because of that, because Cthulhu was my first game, I don't think that I would have, I would have become something else. I don't know what it was. Yeah. I, I don't know if, if I, I think I would have eventually wanted to design games, but um, because it's the only thing I'm good at, but the <laughs> kind of I'm kind of like an idiot savant, but the um, uh, but I don't think it would have been the same because right. Cthulhu taught me so many skills that other role playing games don't teach you, and I think that that had a lot to do with it. So when I've had conversations about horror, and I've had this conversation a few times, because it fascinates me. It's my favorite genre uh, of, of role playing. It always has been. Um, and part of it, I think, has to do with uh, the challenge of it. And mm-hmm. um, boy, when it's done right, like when you you could I could I could I could GM 10 sessions of a horror and get nine of them wrong and one of them right. And I, I, it's all a success for me. Yeah, because right? when it when it works, it's just the best. But the one distinction I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on is the distinction between scaring the character versus scaring the player. And is that an important distinction and does it matter? It does. It, it, it is a distinction and it matters because my goal as remember, we were talking about how, where the author find or the reader finds out that they're the killer. Right. Right. So my goal in a role-playing game 
is the moment when the distinction between the player and the character is blurred. Um, I want people to stop thinking my character is in trouble and think I am in trouble. And I only need it for a moment. I only want it for a moment because that's a magical moment. That is that is a that is the moment the player will come to you after the game and go, that really, really scared me. Right? <laughs> and at the same time, there are in other role playing games, you can invoke other emotions like um, um, there have been like I know we're going to talk about the L5R card game. There were times in the L5R card game that people came to me and said, oh, my God, I had this emotional reaction during this collectible card Isn't game. Isn't that funny? Right. And, you know, that happened at the Day of Thunder and and uh, and in a few other times, too. And and that's always been my goal is is to is to bridge that gap between what's real and what's imagined. And cause I think that it's, it's, you get the same thing when you watch movies and you cry. It's the, you watch people in, in Avengers Endgame when Captain America picks up Thor's hammer, picks up Mjolnir and they go crazy. Yeah. Right. I went crazy. Yeah. Like I don't like that movie, but I went that moment right there. Uh, oh Yeah. <laughs> I'm in right there. Right. Yep. And that's, that's a fantastic thing. And that's what literature can do for us. Movies, books, TV, whatever is that emotion that what the Greeks called catharsis, where mm -hmm. you are feeling what the protagonist of the play is feeling. And that was the goal of Greek tragedy and Greek, you know, and comedy and everything else was to, to gain that. I don't see why role play, and I think that role playing games are uniquely suited to do that. Yeah, I completely agree. So, guys, the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try and understand their process, their inspirations, and their methods for crafting their creations. Boy, we've got a hell of a guest today. We're going to do that with John. We're going to uh, take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about the Legend of Five Rings. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Dead Belt, a card-based space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, 
You might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. <laughs> no one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to a acoupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes. So, John, uh, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, my daughter and I go to the John Wick Museum. And, of course, there's a whole series of, of uh, exhibits there. And I, I take her to the first exhibit, which was was uh, J- John's big break. So I'd be curious to know what you kind of consider maybe your breakthrough or the moment where you, you really made the leap um, to begin your career. I owe everything to a man named DJ Trindle. Uh, he was the assistant editor of Shadis Magazine for uh, Alderac Entertainment Group. And I had met DJ at uh, at a strategic con here in or here, but back in Los Angeles. And uh, and I asked if he was looking for freelance writers, and he said yes. He gave me the little piece of paper, and I gave him. I sent him an article or an S. Uh, essentially, <clears throat> I told him uh, when I was talking to him, I said I'd really like to be at the time. I'd really like to be the Harlan Ellison of the game industry. Wow. Okay. And, uh, and he said, what do you mean by that? And I said, I want to make people mad at me. But, <laughs> but, you know, and, and we talked about that, about, you know, being a muckraker and, you know, and things like that and being a contrarian. And so I sent him an essay called Shakespeare didn't need dice, which was about diceless role playing and the virtues of, of playing without a random element in the game. And he really liked it. He liked it so much. He went to the owners of AEG and said, we have to hire this guy to write for our magazine. Isn't that something? Um, what happened with Shadis is that Shadis had kind of exploded with the collectible card game thing. And uh, and they were looking for someone to just write content. And so they hired me and uh, I wrote under like five different pseudonyms. <laughs> and was writing a whole ton of stuff for Shadis Magazine. Some of them were uh, editorials. Some of them were opinion essays. I did a whole bunch of reviews, just a ton of reviews. And and because uh, I had written reviews in college, I did a, a whole bunch of reviews. And I had a had a very distinct idea of what a review should be. And thankfully, John Zinzer, who was one of the guys in charge of a, uh, AEG, he agreed with me. Uh, the AEG policy was if was the mom rule. If you don't have something nice, don't say anything. Mm. And so all of our reviews were positive. It's like, it. you should check this out because. And if you like X, you're going to like this. Yeah. So that was our review policy. Our worst review was we don't review your game because we couldn't find anything nice to say about it. So <clears throat> I wrote a whole ton of, of those reviews. And um, I and then like being a you know in college I was a regular writer for the school newspaper and uh, for other things and then so I did a whole ton of reviews for, for or a whole ton of writing for Shadis and then Dave Williams um, brought me in on the secret which is we are designing a collectible card game and at the time. It was a Japanese collectible card game because uh, John 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 Zinser and Dave and uh, and David C had played a whole ton of Bushido 
his kids. And they wanted to do a Japanese uh, collectible card game. And it started as one thing and then evolved into another and then evolved into another. And I kind of, and, and they were going to, so they said they were going to base it on Miyamoto Musashi's Book of the Five Rings. Nice. And I said, great. Has anybody read Book of the Five Rings? <laughs> I did. I read it when I was studying philosophy in college. And I did That's my whole I bit on, Look at you. on, uh, on, uh, on uh, I did a whole track on non-Western philosophy. So I had read uh, the, uh, I read the Buddha and I had read, you know, a whole kind of, whole, all kinds of stuff. And one of the things I read was, was Sun Tzu or, and, uh, and Musashi. And, uh, and people were like, oh, no. And I said, oh, here's all this stuff that we can import into the card game. There's yeah. the, the actual rings and things like that. So that was kind of my contribution to the game was, was the Japanese of it, the Japanese-ness of it, as much as, you know, a white guy can, can <laughs> sure. know Japanese. <laughs> and um, and uh, then I was kind of brought in to name all the characters and write all the flavor text. Wow. And there was an, and uh, at the time I introduced Dave, Dave taught me how to play Magic the Gathering because I really didn't know. I had played it, but I didn't know how to play it. We were both really big fans of the vampire collectible card game. Good game. And I was a fan of the over the edge collectible card game. And I taught Dave how to play that. And I said, and one of the things they're doing from expansion to expansion is that characters are changing from expansion to expansion. We should totally exploit this, except turn it to 11, right? <laughs> There's a story and yeah. the players can influence the story through tournaments. And that was, and so the, the whole idea of story tournaments, I, I made the first suggestion that we should exploit what over the edges or on the edge is doing, which is what the card game is called. It's inspired by the over the edge role-playing game, which is right. amazing and fantastic. But, um, and then just, like all all ideas in the Legend of the Five Rings card game, one person like said we should do this, and then everybody else kind of jumped on it and tweaked yeah. it and, and everything else. And uh, so the storyline, we set up the storyline. We we had a big story meeting, and everybody built the story arc, and I was kind of put in charge of that. And then Dave was in charge of the mechanics. Matt was in charge of the art. But among those three people, we had a lot of influence on each other because I wrote a, a lot of the art descriptions for the characters, handed them to Matt. And then Matt would talk to the artist about, does this work? Does this work? And so he did a ton of work for that. And then they would suggest character ideas and story ideas and flavor text to me. Um, Dave had a whiteboard on his wall, which was other, we, we, he had the words other people's ideas. <laughs> and so you could go into Dave's office and write down an idea oh, on, his, on cool. his whiteboard. Right. And often when I did that, he would say, yeah, that's already in the game. It's <laughs> such a good idea. It's already in the game. Nice. Nice. And so it was this real collaborative effort that that really put it together. When did you get a sense in that process? Because so first of all, the idea, especially back then, of of creating a world around a collectible card game is pretty darn unique, right? Um, especially with a not based on another IP. There was no role playing game yet or anything. This was all original, from my understanding. When did you start to feel like the world was coming together? When did it, do you remember when it really started to gel, or was it just so gradual it just kind of happened? 
when it was gradual and and it was it was milestones. It was things like I drew the map yeah. of the world, and um, Matt Wilson had written had drawn like a black and white uh, outline. It was it, it didn't it had like a couple mountains on it and like where the capital was, and then. I went home all day and had this huge piece of paper and I just drew out the whole map. Like where's the scorpion clan? Where is the lion clan? Where, you know, what are the capitals of all these things? And just kind of put it all together. Right. And, um, and, and, and all those things just kind of like, it was those milestones. It was like, which clans are in the game? Uh, the fact that, you know, Matt Wilson came up with the idea of that there is a banished clan, which was the Scorpion clan, right? And 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 all that that kind of stuff. So it was it, it was different milestones that that but we were clearly building a world to role play in. <laughs> that was that's where I was headed. <laughs> right. Uh, that was the goal. We were gonna do a role playing game. And so, uh, that, so that's what I've always wondered, John. So that was that was always there. It didn't come didn't come from there. That seed was there from the beginning, you think? Or, you know? Oh, yeah, totally. It was gotcha. there from the beginning. And so all the thoughts that we had about the card game was how will this work in the role playing game? And, and if the answer was it won't, we didn't do it. Interesting. Because we're like, this won't work in the role playing game. OK, well, then I won't do that. Well, and it's funny because when people talk about L5R, there's two things they talk about, how clever the game is um, and engaging the game is mechanically. And then it's always, I mean, people don't identify, you hear people say, well, I'm a blue deck guy. Not like they identify themselves as a scorpion player, right? I mean, it's it's a whole nother thing. It's, uh, it's, It's pretty impressive. So when were you able to, or when did the company shift, I guess I should ask, uh, to say, okay, now let's start working on the actual RPG? It was a long process because there was a lot of arguments about what the game system should be. And different people had different ideas. And... Uh, we essentially, everybody had to pitch ideas and show how they worked. And the uh, what we ended up going with was something that was inspired by something else that Dave Williams and I were big fans of, which is the James Bond role-playing game. Uh, uh, and Dave and I were big fans of the betting mechanic in it. I'm not uh, familiar with that. It's um, it's on my shelf over there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I've heard of the game, but I'm not familiar with the betting mechanic. My, what was it's that? It's on my my shelf over there. It's, you know, so uh, that's my just just so you know, it's a secret fetish of mine is to look at other people's bookshelves. It's always yeah, has been. <laughs> <laughs> so I like talking to you, John. But if you could move the camera back over, <laughs> oh yeah, there you go. So the uh, so the the James Bond role playing game has has a wagering mechanic in it, and the more you wager, the bigger the effect is. And Dave and I loved that. And it also really fit the Iojutsu mechanic. So essentially the, the game system really evolved from the Iojutsu mechanic that, that we came up with, which was I have a pool of dice and you have a pool of dice. And we're betting. I, I start by saying, I'm going to get rid of this many dice. And then you have to get rid of one more than I did. Right. And so there's this betting mechanic for the for the quick draw for the, the, the samurai duel. And we went, why don't we just make this the mechanic? Interesting. And that's where that came about was 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 that uh, was that whole idea. Now, do you feel in in the process of creating the role playing game? What did was the world already there or did the, the world evolve even more in the process of making the role playing game? It definitely evolved more. 
um, especially because we brought other people in to write on it. Uh, we brought in Reese to write for the Crane book, and eventually she became the line developer for the for the whole thing. Um, and and because of that, because other people's voices were involved, you're going to get different points of view. Mm-hmm. And I wanted different points of view for especially the clan books because I wanted a different voice as the line developer for that line. I wanted a different voice for each of the clans um, because it was really important to me that the clans sounded and felt different and that they're and, and, and something that I outclevered myself. I was like, and they have their own version of history. So if you line up all of the clan's histories like together, none of them match. Interesting. And uh, and I thought that was brilliant mm-hmm. because it shows that the clans are very, it's like, what is Rokugan's real history? It's a mystery. And what I found out was that uh, role players uh, want cold, hard facts. How do <laughs> I run funny. this? How do I run this if I don't know what the history was? You know? And uh, I bumped into that in other role playing games too. When I when I uh, I bump into it with uh, with a lot of different fandoms, like vampire fandoms and RuneQuest fandoms, and I'm and sure. fandoms where the history of the of the thing is really important. And frankly, to me, I I don't care. Mm-hmm. I I don't. It's like, do, do you know what happened two hundred and fifty years ago in your town? Right. No. Okay, why is it important to your why is it important to you to know it? Yep. Right? Um yep. Yep. and uh yeah, I mean I'm a history buff. I love history and but you know, it doesn't really affect me. You know, what happened a thousand years ago doesn't affect me today. Well, and l- let's be honest, if we read two different books about what happened a thousand years ago, they're not going to match up perfectly, no. right? There's going to be two distinct versions of it in that respect. So something I've wondered, um, John, because you're known for a lot of things, but one thing that I think is uh, talked about a lot with you is just your ability to create these fully fleshed out, just rich worlds. And you do that with Legend of the Five Rings, but at some point you walk away from it, right? Mm-hmm. You step away from it and you move on to other things. What is that process like to put so much into a game like that and then move on? Is that a situation where you're like, my work's done here and I need a break from it? Or is it bittersweet? No, I get bored. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) It's like I've said everything that I want to say about this thing. Yeah. And I have a list. I have a file. I have a word file. And, And actually, it's not even a word file anymore. It's a G drive document of all the things that I want to work on. Mm. And I have a, a horror role-playing game called A Game Called Fear. Nice. I have a, a, a Barbarella erotica space opera role-playing game called Galaxy Triple X. Very nice. Where it's a, it's a role-playing game where there's, if you look at your wall, there's 10,000 role-playing games that use violence to resolve problems. I think there's room for one role-playing game that uses sex to resolve problems, and I'm going to write it. <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> so it's finished right but i i have to i have other things that i have to do and and i can't you know and then there's um i have a game called secret that i want to do which is uh a game about magic like literally like a game that encompasses uh every kind of magic in the world from yikes uh uh from voodoo to 
uh, Norse rune magic to Native American spiritualism to Victorian spiritualism. Like it encompasses everything. Mm-hmm. Tiny little project I want to do. Yeah, yeah. You knocked that out this weekend, right? Yeah. <laughs> Put it up on itch. You're ready to go. <laughs> and I was just talking to Jared about it, as a matter of fact, because he read my notes on it, and and he was like, and he was like, you know what I really like about this is which is the rules, your rules for magic. And I was like, what is that? And he said, well, your rules for magic are, and these are the rules in the game. Uh, number one, uh, it always costs more than you're willing to pay. Number nice. two, you never get exactly what you want. And number three, it breaks all the rules. And he's like, do you need anything other than that? I'm That's like, not really, cool. no. It's the only That's thing cool. I really need for my role-playing game. And he's like, then publish that. And I'm like, what, on an index card? <laughs> <laughs> so what did what was next for you then, John, when, um, when you kind of wrapped up there? So I, I started designing uh, 7th C for AEG. And that started out as a project that uh, my wife at the time, uh, Jennifer and I, were working on. We were at a uh, we were at a, a spaghetti Italian restaurant, and she said, "I would really like to see a role playing game based on the works of William Blake." Nice. And I went, "Oh, that's interesting. That's kind of crazy." And. Uh, and I was reading at the time, I was reading a book called Isaac Newton, The Last Sorcerer, which is a, a book not about, it's a biography of Isaac Newton, but focuses less on his work in physics and more on his work in alchemy, which he was really interested at the time. Mm-hmm. He considered his great work and this physics stuff was something he did, right? <laughs> And uh, those two, th- and, and what she meant by, by, uh, by Blake was that she wanted to do a role-playing game that was visceral and magical and, and felt like, in, and the magic was uh, potent and, right. and costly and, and all this other kind of stuff, right, she was talking about. And so what came out of that is the Seventh Sea Nation of Odache. Hmm. Because it was, oh, because we had also seen the movie uh, Dangerous Beauty, which is a bio, which is a drama bio, biography of, um, of a courtesan, an Italian courtesan uh, in the 1600s, uh, Franco. Uh, I can't think of her first name. Anyway, and I just, when I went to Italy, I went to see her apartment. And oh, wow. uh, Veronica Frank, De, Veronica DeFranco. And, uh, uh, and the book, The Honest Courtesan is, is, uh, is a biography of hers. And so we together created the setting for Vidace, which is a, uh, a, a setting that, that fits all of the goals that we were talking about. And we pitched it at, as, at, 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 uh, AEG as the next project. And, the the game expanded from there until right. instead of just being a game about Italy into being a game a fake Italy into being a game that was a, a fake Europe and I was really pulled into it kicking and screaming oh, I did really? not want to do fake Europe I went we can get away with doing fake Japan because Americans don't know Japan right but every single American gamer is a armchair historian and they are going to call us on every single thing that we do interesting which happened 
I bet. <laughs> so when we like, for example, and it's funny because all the stuff that goes into Seventh Sea, which is a pseudo historical, fantastic version of Europe called Thea, every single thing that we put in there is based on something historical that was extrapolated out. Um, so, for example, in Thea, there's what's called the Vendel League which is an organization of guilds. So you have the Baker's Guild and the the, ship, the Shipwright's Guild and the, the Brewer's Guild all get together, create their own currency. And in order to pay for your stuff at the shoemaker, you have to use the Vendel currency. And uh, when, when the game came out, a couple of those armchair historians said, this is stupid. This would never happen. This is completely, you know, n- no, this is completely historical. And I said it was called the Hanseatic League. It existed. <laughs> it existed for quite a while before it failed. And it exists within the scope of our game. So it's there. So Mr. Wick has receipts. I have receipts. <laughs> and I don't know if I can use profanity on your on your show. You but I used a great deal of profanity at those people. <laughs> so it sounds like you had the tone and the feel was kind of the first initial conversation that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, then you, you start small, right? And it starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Then you settle on the setting itself. Where are mechanics during all of this? Was that was this part of that or was it still just trying to figure out the setting in the world and the look and the feel. The real part was taking the mechanics from, because AEG wanted to use the same mechanics that we were using in Legend of the Five Rings. So importing those mechanics, because Legend of the Five Rings is specifically designed, because I'm a fan of Greg Stafford's Pendragon, mm-hmm. to emulate the literature. So there's an honor mechanic. There's a mechanic for quick draw duels. There's a mechanic for spirit, for the kind of spiritual Shinto magic that um, that L5R uses. Okay, let's take that and move it over to a game that's supposed to be Magic Errol Flynn. Right. Okay, how do we do that? And so it started off by paring everything down and simplifying things mm-hmm. because I wanted the game to be much faster than L5R and emulate the kind of because in in set when you want Legend of the Five Rings was meant to emulate Akira Kurosawa films, Chernabra films, and uh, at the same time, Seven C was supposed to emulate swashbuckling adventure films. Mm-hmm. And it's funny too because at the time we were doing it, uh, Rob Vox, who was one of the writers there, he said there can never be another pirate movie because Errol Flynn is dead. <laughs> And he was right until we found out that Johnny Depp can can do that. Pretty good pirate. Yeah, he can he can, he can do that. Yep. So, um, so uh, the we wanted to emulate the kind of back and forth dueling, uh, uh fencing that mm-hmm. is in the games, and so we had to figure out a way to make that work. And so a lot of it was was taking what we had already done and learned about the L5R system and then changing it into the 7C system. Yeah, and it's interesting to me too because uh, it, it, 7Cs is one of those instances where we see the concept of the GM and player collaboration a little bit in the conversation and deciding uh, the number of raises that need to happen and how all of that mechanically is going to happen. And I, I found that very, very interesting. Um, and I don't think I realized that that, that was born first at some level in L5R. Yeah. 
Is the GM saying you need three raises to do that? Got it. Got it. So the other thing that blew my mind the first time I opened up Seven Seas is holy crap, the character creation process. Yeah. You mean first edition or the new edition? Uh, the new edition. Okay. Um, so unique um, and and so just rich and full. And I was wondering, was that the idea from the beginning that we're going to make this not just a, you know, you buy points here, you buy points there, you fill out your little sheet and go. I mean, it's you tell a whole freaking story in, yeah. in that process. Um, and was yeah. that there from the beginning or is that something that came during development? No, that came from the beginning. The, the whole idea of like your character's story is a mechanic on the character sheet. Yeah. Right. That's again, that comes from the, if it's not on the sheet, it's not real. If it's not on the mm-hmm. sheet, it's not real. And second edition seven C comes from 20 years of, of making games, not for AEG, but for myself. Right. Cause I bumped into that guy, Jared Sorensen. Well, after I left AEG, I moved to, uh, I moved to the, the Bay area to work for video game company. And that's where I met Jared and Jared mm. was making games that are tiny. And I don't, I mean a role-playing game that's like 16 pages. Right. And at the time that was like, like now you can see that like in a lot of different places, but at the time yeah. it was like, this isn't a role-playing game. It's only 16 pages. It's not 300 pages. It doesn't have rules <laughs> and all this other stuff. And Jared and I were having lunch and I had just published Orc World, which is a role-playing game about you play orcs and the monsters are the humans, dwarves, and elves who come and kill you and take your stuff. And the game was this huge anthropological look at orcs. I wanted to, because orcs really represent, to me, orcs are the symbol of everything that's wrong with traditional fantasy and I mean, fantasy like elves and dwarves and stuff role-playing. Why um, is that? It has heavy racist overtones. Yep. It is all about violence because mm-hmm. violence and and the fact of the matter is, is that games, well, I won't mention any names, but the initials are D&D. Um, <laughs> games have have this attitude, which is I kill stuff so I can go through its pockets for spare change so I can buy bigger things, buy bigger weapons to kill bigger stuff. Yeah. And it's all about getting better. Mm-hmm. The game is all about getting better. And so I I designed Orc World as kind of like the counterpoint, the counter viewpoint to that, which was you are not the best equipped. You do not have the best magic. You're not the strongest. You're not the fastest. Um, but you're a person. You're a sentient creature who is self-aware. Yeah. And I took all of the tropes that make orcs evil and I turned them into cultural values. Interesting. So... Um, orcs are cannibalistic. Okay, why are they cannibalistic? Because they believe that if you eat the remains of your foes and friends, that you take on the spirit of them. So if Bob, our buddy Bob, orc, dies, we ceremoniously cut him up, cook him, and eat him so we can carry Bob with us wherever we go. You owe it to him. And because it's a mechanic, it's true. Right. Right. If it if you ceremoniously eat Bob and you gain stats, it's true. Right. Um, The same thing is like like orcs, you know, screw everything. Right. Why is that? Well, because they haven't figured out that sex makes babies yet. (laughs) Okay. so so they just think that that the women orcs are magic because they can make babies. Interesting. And so the the so orcs are matriarchal. Um, so the, the reason you never see, and the first picture, I think, I think, 
I could be wrong, but I think my book was the first book that when you open it, the first picture is a mother orc carrying a child. And that's what my, and I was like, that's what my game is about. Yeah. Cause that's what you're protecting. Cause right. male orcs protect the female orcs cause they're magic. That's cool. And female orcs tell the male orcs what to do. And I was like, well, if, if they haven't figured out that sex makes babies, that means that there's no kind of male territorial bullshit going on. And women are in charge. So women have a harem of their favorites that they have sex with whenever they want. So orcs are cannibalistic, matriarchal, bisexual, because they haven't figured out the sex makes babies yet. So they don't know. Sure. And polyamorous. That's cool. And this is in 2000. Yeah, it's a little, a little. What, what was the feedback I was, on that? I was woke before it was woke. <laughs> You're craft beer woke. I'm craft beer woke. <laughs> so yeah, the response was not positive. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was pretty. People were really. Ter- I mean, because the majority of gamers are, you know, men, and really, you know, like, what is this? I got to take orders from a woman, and she gets to screw whoever she likes. God, isn't that funny? But, you know, uh, Jared <laughs> like, was a big yeah. fan of it. Jared, Jared loved it. He, he was like, this is great. So we, we met at a convention and we were talking and I said, uh, and I said something to him. I said, you know, I really don't dis- run games the way I write them. That's interesting. It's like I probably use 10% of the rules in L5R. Wow. And he said, why don't you write games the way you run them? And, <laughs> and I, I, I had the, the mind blown meme, right? And so after that, I, I wrote about a dozen games that were 20 pages, 30 pages. Um, uh, Orc World had a ton, it was a 250 page book, but the vast majority of it was setting, was, was like, what do orcs believe and what are they, all that kind of stuff. And so a lot of the games after that were r- super rules light. And I learned the ultimate GM trick from, from Jared. Which was the, um, which is his dice rolling trick that he used in Octane, which is in Jared's in Jared's game. And when I met Jared, I decided that I wasn't going to make another role playing game until I had done something as innovative at that as Greg Stafford had done. And Greg Stafford is a guy who created RuneQuest and created Pendragon, and also with Lynn Willis created the D6 system that the star the original Star Wars role playing game used. And Greg had Greg and Lynn had created target numbers. And the whole idea was, is that you don't need all these tables and charts and things to figure out. The GM just says, uh, you say, I want to shoot the stormtrooper. And, and the GM says, great, roll 10 or higher. <laughs> and Isn't that was, that you know, and, and Greg Kostikian came in and, and they did it for the Ghostbusters role playing game. And then Greg Kostikian came in and kind of adapted that for Star Wars. And, and I was like, being all, you know, young and full of piss and vinegar. I am not going to make another role-playing game until I can come up with something as innovative and and rule-breaking as that. And then I discovered Jared had already done it. And Jared's (laughs) thing was, and and like I said, uh, this is in 2000. So, and Jared said, look, in Octane, what happens is if your character, if you roll high, you, the player, gets to say what happens next. And if you roll low, the GM says what happens next. And that could mean that you succeed, you fail. It doesn't matter. You get to decide. And to me, that uh, that was one of those other that was one of the other epiphanies of that fixes everything that's wrong with role playing games. 
<laughs> you know, and- it's so funny to hear about this, John, because like the, 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 you, what you're talking about with, you know, the D6 system and the target number system is stuff that we just take for granted now. Right. Yeah. And it, but there was a first there was the first time that was done. And I'm old enough to remember the before and the after. But I just I it just never clicked like, yeah, it changed everything. Yeah. Target numbers changed the game industry. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. It's like, how and many then, successes do you need? Okay, that's target numbers. You know, uh, all of it. it. It's And there's innovation going on all the time. Yeah. And, yeah, but, and it, it's important to, as a game designer, it's important to look outside your bubble and look at what other people are doing, even if you don't like it. Right. Right. Um, are you familiar with Dread? So th- is that the Jenga? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, so uh, everybody keeps telling me I got to play it. I got to play it. Mm-hmm. And I've got a group of guys that I go camping with twice a year. And I've been promised that I'm going to play Dread and the fall camping trip. So, so it's in my future. But to answer your question, no, I have not played it. So um, the game mechanic, Dread is a horror role playing game where the mechanic is Jenga, mm-hmm. where you whenever you say you want to do something, you have to pull one of the Jenga boards out. There is nothing more terrifying than that Jenga tower teetering and your character's survival depends on you pulling out that thing. <laughs> it is a tangible, uh, uh, visceral thing that you are doing. It's you're not rolling dice and the piece of plastic tells you what happens next. It's all on you. Yeah. It's all on you. And one of the brilliant mechanics I love is that you can trash the Jenga tower and your character dies, but everybody else survives. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. And fits the uh, fits the genre nicely, too. Yep. And you rebuild the tower. Oh, that's cool. So, that's cool. So the first time I heard it, I was like, are you kidding? First time I saw it, I saw people playing Jenga. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. No, that's stupid. Why would anybody? And then I, like, overcame my stupid monkey prejudice, right? And I was like, okay, how does this really work? And I played a session of it. And I was like, this is brilliant. And that's something. This is brilliant. And and there's other things too, like the, the Doctor Who role-playing game initiative system, which if you're a Doctor Who fan, are you familiar with it? I'm not. I'm okay. dying to hear about it. So you, are you a Doctor Who fan? A huge Doctor Who fan. Okay. Yeah. So but I've never played a Doctor Who role-playing game. So this is awesome. Second edition is coming out soon. You should check it out. Um, the the initiative mechanic is not based on who on dexterity and who rolls highest. It's based on what people are doing. Mm. So... There are four categories of people, talkers, runners, doers, and shooters or fighters. Okay. Okay? The first group of people to go to take action are the talkers. And they resolve all their actions. Then the next uh, group of people are the doers. They're the people who are fixing something, turning something on, turning something off, repairing something, all that. The next category of people to go are the runners, which is everybody who moves. Right. And then lastly, the last category of people to go are the shooters, which is everybody who's shooting a weapon or whatever. That is the Doctor Who role-playing game. That's cool. Because if you think about it, how does a Doctor Who episode work? The Daleks show up and the doctor says, oh, witty thing. Would you like a, would you like a jelly bite baby? Right. And the Daleks go destroy destroy and so the doctor tries to fix the thing and that doesn't work and then he runs away (laughs) and then the daleks start shooting isn't that funny and that is how the initiative system works also there's um there's an advantage in the doctor role-playing game called screamer (laughs) 
which is you can take an action during the talking phase and scream, and it adds to your movement, and it means all the shooters are stunned. That's really funny. <laughs> but does what you've been talking about, John, which is creating mechanics that build up the, in the Pendragon way that 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 hold up the the concept right the 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 look and the feel of the game which is something that um i have been a stunned by so very very quickly to give you just a little context i took a 25 year break from role playing um and Mm -hmm. it was just two years ago that i came back and needless to say when I left and when I came back, a few things had happened over those 25 yeah. years, <laughs> right? And part of what I've been doing with this podcast is trying to piece together those 25 years and talk to people that were there and that were part of it. Um, and one of the huge things that I came back to is I, I left Champions and GURPS, right? And where, mm-hmm. where it's just kind of this feeling like we're going to create the one system to rule them all yeah. and you're going to be able to do whatever you want. And I come back and it's like, well, if you want to tell this story, then you use this game with this mechanics. If you want to tell this story, you use, and I, I, Grognard me, you know, smarter than everybody else. Cause I've been away for a while was just like, well, that's dumb. Why would I do that? And well, then I started playing those games and I'm just like, holy shit. Like, wow. Like this, like I, that was my mind blowing. You know, the first time I played like blades in the dark, the first time that I uh, picked up, um, you know, a game where, you know, uh, like the alien role playing game from, um, a uh, free league, mm, right? Where, where yeah. the mechanics are just a visceral part to just build up that feeling. And it just, and it just blows my mind. And I see that in seventh seas, um, where, you know, the mechanics are there and, and, and dictate and say, this is the story you're going to tell, right? This is the world and this is what it's going to happen. Do you have a sense, John, like maybe when you realized that that was a Pendragon that made you realize that that was the way to go? Yeah, it was, it was the, yeah. the idea that, that game mechanics should reflect the tropes of the literature that you're trying to emulate. Or to be even more specific, game mechanics should address the story you're trying to tell. And if they don't, then get rid of them. Yeah. Because they... they, So, um, I often talk about the worst mechanic in any game. There, There is one mechanic that is the worst mechanic in any game, and it's lose a turn. Because when you somebody plays a card that makes you lose a turn in, in a board game, what do you do? You disengage from the game. Like, oh, I'm not playing anymore. Right? That's, that's what happens when you lose a turn. Yep. Okay. So um, one of the things that we wanted to do in 7th C was to ensure that no one ever lost a turn. And if you think about, like, when we're talking about Jared's roll high, you get to say what happens next mechanic. You never lose a turn because even if you roll low, you are still going. You're mm-hmm. describing how your character fails. And if you're describing how your character, and th- th- there's something else to talk about this too. But when, when, when the GM says, okay, if you roll high, you get to say how you succeed. If you roll low, you, you have to say how you failed. You failed, but you've still, you're still engaging with the game. You're still engaging with the setting. Jared's example is if you watch Ghostbusters, they fail almost every role in that in that movie. <laughs> they just fail and they fail. Indiana Jones is the same thing. In the Raiders of the Lost Ark, he when he he's going to switch out the idol for the for the thing of sand, he fails. Um, mm-hmm. He's going to jump across the pit, he fails. He tries to bluff his way past past Balash, he fails. You know, and and it's all this series of of failures. But he's still Indiana Jones, and he's still awesome because he's describing how he fails. Interesting and. So uh, from that point of view, 
the the lose a turn mechanic, which is what happens when you're in a game where it's turn based combat and it's your turn and you take a swing at the monster and you miss. That's lose a turn. Yep. Okay, I'm going to pick up my iPhone. I'm going to play pinball on my iPhone. I'm disengaged from the game. So um, instead of dice rolls meaning success or failure, now die rolls mean who gets to say what happens next or, you know, how you have to describe the outcome of the action. Yeah. And so for me, that that whole notion of of game mechanics addressing not just the tropes of the literature, but how you we tell stories to each other. That's that's the interesting part. Well, and I love the sense of our responsibility to keep everybody engaged. Um, yeah. I mean, we hear that in all the GM advice, and now you're talking about it being part of the game itself, part being part of the mechanics. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. It. I have designed role-playing games to make GMing easy. <laughs> yeah. I have. So I'm, I'm doing, um, right now I'm, I'm part of a project called the Geeks Therapy Project, which is a bunch of game designers and GMs, professional GMs, teaching therapists how to use role-playing games in sessions. Ugh. Okay. So we're, and of course, the, the, they, they want the, when the, the guy who's running the thing came to me, I was like, okay, so are we running D&D? Is that what we're doing? And he's like, yeah. And I said, okay, but I can run it the way I want, right? He's like, yeah. And I said, great. So we're, they have D&D characters and they show up for the first game session. And I say, the first time they roll dice, I went, okay, so we're going to do something different. You can roll as you usually do and add your bonuses on your character sheet. If you roll 15 or higher, you get to say how your character succeeds. And if you roll 14 or less, you have to say how your character fails. And they're like, and there's, there's a process. It's like the right. grieving process that people go through, <laughs> right? At first, they're like, denial. Like, no, that doesn't, no, no. And then there's, you know, anger. It's, you know, and they, they just go through this process. And then eventually there's this click yeah. where they realize, oh, wait, I can see how my character fails. That means I can say, I try to, I try to um, uh, uh, flirt with the countess and I fail, and she takes it the wrong way. She takes it this way. I get to say that? Like, yes. They're like, oh. And they, they suddenly get it. And what I, told them at the, what I told them at the end of the session, I was like, now look, you're trying to use role-playing games in the therapeutic situation, which means these people, you, they, you need to earn their trust. Yeah. And most role-playing games have by default, an adversarial relationship between the GM and the players. By using this one technique, <laughs> you have removed that adversarial thing. They get to say what happens next, regardless of what they roll. They get to say what happens next. They become the GM for that moment. Right. And now you're free to go. Well, and I would right. imagine, John, you're saying this out loud and my, you got my wheels turning. I'd also imagine that sense of empowerment and agency, which has to be a, an important part of therapy for a lot of people. I mean, yep. that, that's what you're doing as well, too, right? Yeah. And, and the other thing that happens is as a GM to make things easier for the GM is that you don't have to come up with what happens next. The player comes up with it for you and what's that accomplishes two things number one it gives the player agency but number two it tells you the gm what i the player want to happen next and when you listen as a gm which is the most important gm tool is listening to your players when you listen to your players they will tell you what they want mm -hmm. 
And so you invoke the old Aristotelian rule of give the audience what they want, but in a way they don't expect it. Yeah. It's inevitable, but unexpected. And yeah. once you do that, you know, you've got the alchemy required for, for storytelling. Well, and I'm going to, I'm going to bust this out because it, it reinforces and uh, the proof is in your pudding, which is the, we see that in your character creation process in 7C, right? So we go through this whole process of creating a character. I put my beliefs, my thoughts, my, my feelings, what's important, what matters to me. And then um, can we talk real quickly about when you decided to extend that beyond character creation and push it into, this is the story we're going to tell? So there's a mechanic in 7C where every character has a story. And um, what that is, is that uh, we'll use Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride as the example. His story is that he wants to kill the man who killed his father. So he puts that on his character sheet. Now, there are steps that he has to take in order to achieve that goal. And the first step is, I must learn this particular fighting style. And the second step is, I must learn this particular fighting style. And the next step is, I must learn this particular fighting style. And then eventually he gets to the step of, I have to find the man who killed my father. And this is the part he's having a problem with, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and so there, there are these different steps. And whenever you accomplish a step in a story, which is, um, I find the grandmaster of the uh, El Delvo style, and I learn that style. That allows you to add something to your character sheet, which is how the experience point system works. And yeah. the way this came about was because I told uh, Mike Curry and Rob Justice, who were working on the game with me, I want to ditch experience points. I don't like experience points. Um, I, I think they're uh, – uh, they, they, they don't say what they mean. They, right. they're, they're just really abstract and, and all that. I want there to be something that replaces experience points. And Rob Justice came up with the story system, the idea that you have goals and the steps to your goal uh, gives you an advancement on your character sheet. Yeah. And that was perfect, is, is absolutely perfect. But I love the advice that you give to the GM in your book, um, uh, and the second edition is what I'm talking about, um, about taking those stories and letting that be the fuel, right? Yep. Because it's doing exactly what you're talking about, which is let the players tell you what they want, the stories they want to tell. And and then you as the GM now have the, the keys of the piano in front of you. Exactly. It's the, it's the let the players, t like I've often said that the character sheet will tell you, the, you the GM, what kind of story the players want. If they make all fighters, clearly they want a particular kind of story. If they make yep. all thieves, Clearly, they want a particular kind of story. Whenever anybody puts something down on their character sheet, it is telling you, the GM, this is what I want. Even if it's something like somebody puts down, puts all of their points into the charm skill. Clearly, that player is telling you something. Yeah. So the story system does the same thing. And it makes the GM's job easier. I don't have to come up with a plot. I've got five players. Each of them has a plot on their character sheet that they came up with that yeah. they want. Okay. Today it's time for Craig's plot. And that yeah. also allows you to move spotlight around and spotlight is the, the concept of uh, this is why game balance and role-playing games is dumb. Yeah. It's just, it's just ludicrous. It's, it's a holdover from, from board games. Yes. Yep. The game balance in a, in a role-playing game is 100% in the GM's hands. 
100%. Because the GM decides what happens next. The GM decides what decisions all the NPCs make. He decides how tough to make the opposition. Everything. A valid move in a role-playing game is the GM saying, rocks fall, you all die, make new characters. Yeah. Now, you may never play with that GM again, <laughs> but that's a valid move. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but Spotlight is what game balance is trying to achieve, which is everybody feels that they contributed to the game. Okay, well, let's just cut to the chase and have everybody contribute to the game. Mm -hmm. And instead of doing all this elaborate math about can a wizard do as much damage as a fighter, as you know, as a thief and, you know, all that crap, right? No, it's did did Craig get his spotlight this game? Did Jessica get her spotlight this game? As a GM, you are balancing spotlight. You're making sure everybody has that spotlight cast on them mm -hmm. and they feel like they had fun in the game. Well, I don't need a mechanic for that. <laughs> I just need to, like, as mentioned in Jessica, my partner, Jessica, uh, one of the reasons that, um, that uh, uh, brute squads in 7th C, who are the nameless group of thugs who show up to defeat you, one of the reasons that they work the way they do, that we said that any skill on the 7th C character sheet can defeat a brute squad. Nice. Any skill is because Jessica said, I want to, when this brute squad was, was, was charging her, her character is a performer. She's a singer. And she says, I want to sing a song that makes them cry and go home to their mothers. And I was like, and one of our mottos in the game, and there's a picture on my wall that says a picture of Errol Flynn that said, what would Errol Flynn do? And that was our motto for Seventh Seed. Yeah. And it's like, could Errol Flynn sing a song? Uh, yes. Yes, you can totally do that. <laughs> and so cool. she sang this song and the Brute Squad stopped in their tracks because her voice was so beautiful. And, they, and she defeated the Brute Squad with a song. And so the, that again, the, the idea of spotlight, Jessica put a whole bunch of points into perform yep. because she wanted performance to be important. And if I, as a GM say, no, you can't do that. I'm telling you, your choice was invalid. Right. And why would I do that? Why would I do well, that? Why as are we GM? here? Yeah. Why are we here? <laughs> exactly. The player exactly. told you what they want and you're going right. to say, oh no, you're wrong for wanting that. Yeah. Screw you. Yep. Go write a novel. Well, and what was funny to me about the spotlight concept when I first came across it um, with you, obviously, is that um, it, it fits ensemble TV as well. Like if you go and you look at the A-Team or any of those shows where you had a cast of four so people and there would be the face episode, there would be mm -hmm. the B.A. Baracus episode, the spot. That's how it works in episodic TV as well, which in a lot of ways are sessions in role-playing games yes. are, are end up being modeled that way, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, very, very cool. So I talked about it with L5R, and we we can't leave 7C until we talk about, like, holy crap, is it a big world? And it's got so much out there. I'd be curious to know, and obviously we, we could spend the next five hours talking about all of the ways that you've expanded that world and all of the incredible amount of material that's available for it. I'd be wondering, uh, I do wonder, though, what is kind of your guiding light? Um, as you say, you know, I am going, I want to, blow this up. I want to explore this more. Um, what tells you um, what's the next part of 7C that you want to want to write about? Um, it really comes down to, for, well, for the first set of source books, 
um, it, it, it evolved from a mantra that we had, a goal that we had for the core book, which was everybody gets to be a hero. Mm-hmm. So when the art director of the first book said, John, can I have a picture of two women or two men kissing in the book? I went, yes, of course. Uh, for two reasons. Number one, anyone can be a hero. It's in the book. And I said, yep. but we also need a picture of two women kissing and a picture of a man and woman kissing. And, and so when someone comes up to me like they do and, yeah. and points at the picture of the two men kissing and going, what is this doing in this book? I can reply, are you asking me, is this a kissing book? <laughs> and either they get it or they don't. Yeah. Yep. And if they don't get it, if they do get it, they kind of like, oh, right. And if they don't get it, then they're not worth my time. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we just, how do I end this conversation as fast as possible? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And the the other one is, so we did a book on uh, on our version, because Thea is a, a mythical version of, magical version of Europe. So we've also done the magical version of North Africa and mm-hmm. North, uh, of the Middle East. Um, and uh, Katai is of the Far East. Or of Asia, and uh, I should say, which is probably more correct. And uh, right now, I'm working on with uh, uh, Derek Pounds uh, with the uh, the essentially our version of North America, which has been incredibly challenging and rewarding, and a treasure trove of discovery for me because I know a lot about European history, and I don't know anything about history before white people showed up in the United States. Very interesting. And, and one of the things that Derek that I recently told Derek like a month ago, I was like, I was doing all this research. I was writing for my chapter and I realized I was writing the chapter from the point of view that all of this was discovered (laughs) by white people. And I I was like, and you guys, and cause Derek is, is, is from the Northeast. He's from one of the North Northeast nations. And he said, yeah, yeah, we were here before you. (laughs) Right. And so it's been it's been incredibly informative and and sad in in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But but I would imagine exploring that from a, you know, an alternate history, alternate world perspective has got to be interesting and and, uh, give you an ability to to say a few things. Yeah. So one of the so one of the things we did with Mesoamerica with the New World core book is that our version of Cortez shows up and goes, I am Quetzalcoatl. And Quetzalcoatl goes, no, you're not. And now you're dead. Mm-hmm. And the, the opening two-page spread is Quetzalcoatl killing Cortez. Yeah. And that was like, it was really, really important to me that that be the opening image of the book of Quetzalcoatl killing Cortez because that changes everything. So in 7C, one of the, one of the philosophies we had is that everything that the 17th century Europeans believed is true in the game. There are witches. There are demons. Uh, the church is 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 a power for good. Not necessarily true in our in our world, but right. in Thea, it's totally true. Yep. Yep. Uh, the uh, you know and all that kind of stuff. So everything that is true that the, the Europeans believed is true is true. Okay, well, mm-hmm. let's extend that out to Africa, to North Africa. Oh, let's extend cool. that to the Middle East. Let's extend that to Mesoamerica. Let's yeah. extend that to the Native Americans. So when the when the the uh, the Thaeans show up in North America and they drop off Scarlet Fever. The Native our Native Americans go magic healed done. So there is no huge extinction event 
unbelievable. Th- that happens. So when the, the Thayans start showing up in droves, there's still a few million people on this continent going, so you want to do what? And all of our magic works? Yep. <laughs> all the, you know, all of our stuff works. I really do talk to Coyote. He's a pain well, I, in the ass, but I really do talk to him. <laughs> right? Well, and, and we're and to your point, we were here before you got here. And we here. were here before you. Yeah. We had a flag. And, As a matter of fact, we yeah. do have a flag. Um yeah. and, uh, and and we and, fought wars and we we you know we had we have civil, yes, that's amazing. That's amazing, John. It it's also in really challenging to represent the people in a way that um is respectful and uh and like I said, everybody gets to be a hero. And I want the the um, I w- eventually in Seventh Sea I want to see a ship with a captain from Thea or whatever, and the first mate is from the Crescent Empire, and the gunner is from Ifri, and the you know and the man at arms are are this crew from from uh, from the Sertepe Sertepe nations and all of this stuff because my personal philosophy, which is hopefully reflected in the book, is there is one tribe, it's called humans, and you know, and yes, we express our individuality in different ways, and and one of the beauties of me being an armchair anthropologist, and studying Japan, and studying, you know, all these different things, is seeing how human beings express themselves in all of these different ways, and there is real beauty in all of it, in, in all of it. You know, I know that a lot of modern scholars have a problem with Joseph Campbell, uh, the mythologist. And the one thing that I think is most important about Campbell, despite all of his weird uh, fetishizations of, of Jung uh, and other stuff, right, <laughs> is that the idea that people, all of people's stories are expressing truths. Right. And the, the truth as they see it and, and learning about how the Japanese express truth and learning how, how of the French express truth, mm-hmm. right? And all these things is, is been, has been a lot of fun. And that's what drives me to make new seven C books. So can you give me a little insight? And again, uh, we could spend five hours about on this next question too, John. So <laughs> welcome to my podcast. Um, <laughs> Can you give me a little bit of insight, though, when you start exploring something um, that that's unfamiliar to you? So you talked about, you know, yeah, you knew a lot about European history and now you start, you know, kind of set something in Mesoamerica. Where where do you go? Like, what is your process? And then how do you know you're, you you might have gotten it right? Well, the, the way that we did it for this edition of 7C is we hired people who did know and let them have voices in, in the book. And uh, essentially, I had very loose guidelines. I mean, one of the loose guidelines is everybody gets to be a hero. Mm-hmm. And that in the world of 7C, there are very clear lines between what is a hero and what is a villain. Not what is good and what is evil, but what is a hero and what is a villain. And those lines are, that line is very clear. And it actually comes from, of all places, it comes from Jane Austen. Very interesting. Um, my partner, Jessica, is a huge fan of Jane Austen. And she once explained to me, I said, why, why are you, 
why do you like Jane Austen so much? And she said, because Jane Austen's stories are about good people who are trying to do the right thing. And the antagonist in a Jane Austen story is misunderstanding. Interesting. And so, and so I was like, that's really fascinating to me. And so she said, let's sit down and watch the five hour Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice miniseries. And I went, I'm up for that. Let's do that. <laughs> and so we did. And when we got to the end of it, and I had read Jane Austen when I was, I think I read Sense and Sensibility when I was in high school. Yeah. I, I thought I'm it was saying. funny. Mm-hmm. Right. I thought the the wit and the humor was really cool. And I got some of the social commentary and then I forgot about it because that's what happens when you you're forced to read something. Right. But then I sat down and read some of it on my own. And I was like, this is fascinating the way that she writes novels. There are no antagonists. Now, there are mean people. There are selfish people. Right. But really, in, in Jane Austen's stories, that the, the antagonist is misunderstanding and miscommunication. That's fascinating. And and I was like, wow, okay, so heroes in Seventh Sea are good people who are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to help other people. And they're willing to risk themselves to help other people. Mm-hmm. And a villain is someone who's willing to risk other people to help themselves. That's a great distinction, man. And so I was like, this is our this is what our thing is about. This is our statement of philosophy for 7C. And, and if, uh, uh, and then how does that express itself in different cultures? And that's what I wanted to see in the different books is how that, that added that idea. And cause I think when you really break down, if you look at, at pretty much any culture, all, every culture has a different way of expressing that. And in some cultures, like in, uh, you can say that in culture A, the idea is that um, the individual is more important than the collective because um, the individual has to be able to express themselves and that's how you get art and that's how you get courage is by the individual breaking the rules, by breaking tradition, which, uh, of course, my favorite definition of tradition is uh, peer pressure from dead people. (laughs) <laughs> nice. <laughs> and the uh and and that's the individual, right? And then in some cultures, the way the individual expresses it or the way that 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 sentiment is expressed is that the 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 collective is more important than the individual. Right. And the individual sacrifices their ego. And I mean that in a my pride, I sacrifice my my pride t- so that the machine of culture can keep going, can can keep processing. And when you get those two cultures as a, a player character A and player character B, and you put them in a situation, what happens? And that, to me, is what's interesting about 7C and about Legend of the Five Rings, too, because in Legend of the Five Rings, each of the clans had a different definition of honor, and they're all right. They're all correct. So when the Lion Clan and the Phoenix Clan samurai meet and they talk about what honor means, that's interesting. And then yeah. how they act, you know, it's the same thing with the uh, with the Thean hero and the Katai hero, or the Thean hero and the and the Crescent Empire hero. And they are good people who are trying to do the right thing, who put themselves in harm's way to help other people. Okay, that's cool. How do they express that? Right. And that's right. what's interesting to me.
It, well, and it create it creates it creates the conflict. It creates it creates the situations that we sit down to play role playing games with, right? Yeah. Is to, is to find out how is this going to shake out. How is this going to play out, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Guys, we're going to take one more break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk to John about, um, first, about Play Dirty, uh, which you may uh, have read of John's or have heard about about John's. And then we're going to talk about stuff that he's working on now, stuff that excites him. And I actually want to find out what does he love right now that he hasn't written. We'll be right back. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway... Enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. So, um... Obviously, I was very familiar with John um, before I asked John to come on the show, and I was you know, obviously very excited. And for those of you who have been listening, you've heard John's name brought up several times, right? As we've talked to other designers, uh, inevitably, <laughs> Legend of the Five, uh, Five Rings or Seven C is going to be part of the conversation um, as we piece through this together. But there's one piece of work um, that... On its own, um, I may not have brought up, um, and it's uh, called Play Dirty, which is a series of essays that got compiled into a book um, that um, John put together. And just very quickly, let me just read a a short description um, blurb from it, which is, learn the worst, most despicable, dastardly and downright dishonest game mastering tricks traps and tactics that will make you the GM your players love to hate. And we heard, you know, John talk about being an evocative writer, which I think is a lot of what Play Dirty is. But what fascinates me about this is that last year, John, on his YouTube channel, started reading the book again. Um, And John, out of curiosity, how much time has passed at this point? Oh, I started writing Play Dirty in 2001. So, wow, it's, it's, it's a, a, literally almost two decades. Yeah. And what John does is he he reads it and comments on it. And and it's not just a director's commentary. It's not just, you know, this is what I was thinking. But what I found fascinating, John, is that when you say I was a different person when I wrote this, um, I, my thoughts have changed. So now that I've explained to everybody where we are, um, because this literally has been my life for like two days watching your videos. Um <laughs> I guess the first thing is, where did the idea come from, John, that you said, you know what, I want to go back and revisit this? It was because it was 20 years. Yeah. Um, also because the 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 uh, 
the COVID had just started. And I, uh, I saw that people were reading books mm -hmm. on YouTube. And I was like, you know what? I got a book. <laughs> I got a book I can read. And so, and I knew that, uh, that enough time had passed that I would be reading through the book and there'd be things that I'd be like, yeah, you know what? I was, uh, yeah, that was, I was really on the nail there. And times like, oh, well, I was full of crap. This, this is stupid <laughs> now. But, but part of it also is that the first play dirty volume was written, uh, as a, as a, as a product or as a, as a project for pyramid magazine. Uh, the editor, Scott Herring contacted me and said, John, I want, to shake up pyramid magazine. And I want someone to write provocative, uh, cause, cause pyramid was Steve Jackson games, uh, Mac, you know, trade magazine, right? It's, it's got Steve Jackson games stuff in it. And because it's so like GURPS, mm -hmm. uh, he's like, I want you to come in and I want you to really screw with the readership. I want you to say provocative things that are true right? But to, to shake things up. And I said, great, I want to do that. So um, the first article I wrote, uh, we put up and uh, Pyramid Magazine had, uh, had, a, uh, had a reader feedback scale, which was five stars, I want to see more of this and negative five stars, I, I never want to see this again. And I asked Scott, I said, hey, Scott, how did, how did the first article go over? And he says, well, I have good news and bad news. I said, well, tell me the bad news first. And he goes, you got more negative five stars than any other article in Pyramid history. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit, that's kind of awful. What's the good news? He goes, you got more positive five stars than any article in Pyramid history. And I went, mission accomplished. So I'm doing something right, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, you're doing exactly what I wanted. That's and awesome. and the, the, the forum thing would fill up after one of my articles went up. So the first article was really meant to provoke, right? Um, but they were meant to not just provoke, but to, to they're meant to provoke in such a way as to challenge established GM truths. Um, and pre but present alternative ways of running your game that that specifically challenged established accepted GM tropes. So sometimes I was very I think I was very successful at that. And there are other times where I think I was just like pissing in people's Cheerios. Mm -hmm. And um, more importantly, since then, my attitude of of how to run a game successfully has changed a lot. In what way? Well, I think that, so back in 2000, I was much younger and I was, uh, I was also very angry at the time. <laughs> uh, and I was, um, and, and, and I would like literally, uh, challenge things because they were established without a good, like alternative, just without one. And, um, and since then I've learned, look, if you, you're going to complain about something, you better have an alternative. You can, you can say, Hey, this is broken because it's important to point out when things like hit points are stupid, right? It's important to point things out. Okay. Well, someone says, what's your alternative? Well, let's look at why hit points are stupid and, 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 and don't reflect what they actually say. 
and come up with something that like conditions. I am tired. I am thirsty. I am hungry. I am hurt. Right. And how these things affect your character in certain ways. So, for example, in 7C, we have wounds, but wounds don't do what hit points do. Um, when, uh, when you start taking wounds, you're, uh, because everybody is, is Errol Flynn in the game, or in this case, John McClane from Die Hard, the more hurt you get, the tougher your character gets. So it's the exact opposite of, of the way that, that like wounds work in like the storyteller system, like the vampire werewolf and all those other systems, the world to darkness system. And it's ironically called the, the death spiral in which is what it's literally it. a spiral. It's, it's literally cool. a spiral on your character sheet, and it makes you tougher as you take more hits. Until eventually you get to a point, the danger point, where if you take any more hits, your character's going to become helpless. And the other thing that we did was that uh, when characters do run out of wounds, they don't die, they become helpless. Which means they they need to spend hero points, they need to spend the commerce of the game to take action. So you can still take actions. You are not losing a turn. There it is. But it's costly to do it. And that was like, okay, well, come up with something better than hit points. Here, here's something better mm-hmm. than hit points, which is much more uh, effective than saying hit points suck. Well, what's your solution? I just know that hit points suck. How often, John, do you find your design is answering a question or fixing a problem or making a statement? All the time. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. <laughs> Everything. I, yeah. I wrote an entire game called Santa Vaca, which is... Um, uh, you know, slang for holy cow or sacred cow, where I uh, I was in the shower where all good ideas come from. And I was thinking, could I take the D&D character sheet, keep everything on it, but make up new mechanics for everything that's on the sheet? So hit points can mean what I want them to mean. Alignment can mean what I want it wants to mean. I have to keep the character sheet but I can redesign all the mechanics that I want. And that's what turned into Santa Vaca was, was taking all the D and D character sheet and designing a new game around it that actually addressed things in D and D that I don't like. Like the fact that hit points, armor class and saving throws all do the same thing in three different ways. It's the same mechanic in it just expressed in three different ways because they're about protecting you from the GM. (laughs) <laughs> nice so, nice so let's take those mechanics and turn them into different things yeah yeah so going back to what we were talking about um let's pretend that i sat down at a con and you did a one shot of call of cthulhu for me in 2000 mm-hmm. and then um you heard a knock at your door tomorrow and said holy shit i was just going to do a podcast why is he at my door and you run a one shot for me tomorrow um of call of cthulhu what would I notice has changed about you as a GM um, over these last 20 years? How would the game be different for me? Um, for Call of Cthulhu, uh, I would probably ignore more rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> they just got less and less important. Less, they get years. less and less important as time went on. Uh, um, I th- okay, so Call of Cthulhu is an interesting choice because... There's actually very little that I would do differently. Okay. Um, because my the way that I run Call of Cthulhu is very freeform, very uh, in and designed in such a way 
that I use the environment. I would, so if you were to show up at my, if you were to show up, here's an answer to your question. If I was at a convention and if I was at home, here's the difference. At the convention, we would be in a hall with a whole bunch of other people and I'd be shouting. At home, I would turn the temperature down to about 60 degrees. I would turn off all the lights. I would have you reading your character sheet by pin light. I would be speaking very quietly. Um, I would, uh, I would have you almost never roll dice. And at some point during the game, you would hear something moving upstairs. <laughs> and I would tell you, you, Craig, you have to go up and see what's up there. Fantastic. By yourself. You just you just made sure I wasn't showing up at your house tomorrow. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very, very cool. Very, very cool. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I I almost feel bad about a little bit, John, um, is I have people like yourself come on and talk about stuff that you made five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And, and you know, I had Steve Jackson on the show and I felt terrible because Steve Jackson was just like, Craig, I don't really want to talk about GURPS. And to a large degree, I don't blame the guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, at this, at this point, the last thing he wants to do is freaking talk about GURPS. So what I want to do is find out from you what you would like to talk about. So is there something that you're working on that you've worked on recently that's something that's getting you excited right now? Um, well, a lot of my focus is on 7C because um, I'm trying to get all of the Kickstarter stuff done. And so th that's hard work, um, mainly because... Uh, the, 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 the big psychological limitation on it is, which is a, I draw from champions. See psychological limitation. <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> is that, uh, um, it's something I have to do. Right. And so it's work. I have to mm -hmm. get up. I have to sit down at the computer. I have to do stuff and it's juggling. There's a lot of juggling going on. I'm, I'm working on two different lines. I'm working on the Katai line and the seven C line, three different books at the same time. And it's, there's a lot of moving parts and stuff. Um, however, uh, something I'm really excited about is something that uh, I used to run at conventions with my friend Dan. And, uh, uh, and it's, uh, of all things, it's a wrestling role-playing game, a professional wrestling role-playing game. And I heard that you're a huge wrestling fan. Is that accurate? I am a huge professional wrestling fan. Ever since, before I was cognizant as a professional wrestling fan, my grandfather, my grandpa, John, who I was named after was a professional wrestling fan. And when he babysat me, he would sit me on his lap and we would watch professional oh, wrestling. That's awesome. Uh, in Minnesota with, uh, with the crippler and, uh, and, uh, dirty, dusty roads. And, and I can, <laughs> I can go on. Okay. I can go on. Now we have a third reason to have you come on. <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, and so what Dan and I do is we run what we call the wrestling LARP. And what it involves is uh, we need a huge group of people, huge, mm -hmm. so because it's a LARP. So we can have as many people as we want. We can we could have 150 people in the room if you wanted. We've done it as much as like 40. And uh, we ask the people who want to be wrestlers, we give them a card, and the card asks you questions. Is what is your wrestler's name? What is your wrestler's gimmick? Which identifies you from, it's why your wrestler is different from the other wrestlers. So for example, Daniel Bryan's gimmick is that he is a professional wrestler. That is his gimmick. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, the Undertaker's gimmick is that he's an undead wizard. Got it. Okay. Uh, uh, Bret Hart's gimmick is that he's the best wrestler in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, things like that. What is your gimmick? And it's beautifully simple in professional wrestling. Oh, isn't yeah. It? Are yeah. you? A, and then we don't ask them if they're faces or heels, whether they're the heroes or villains. We don't ask them that. And then we say, um, and then we say, uh, 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 you know, what are three things that distinguish you as a, as a wrestler? And then uh, we have the people who are going to be wrestlers come up and the rest of the, uh, the rest of the players are an important character in the world of professional wrestling, because there are four characters in, a, in, in the story of a professional wrestling match. There's the heel. Who's the villain, mm-hmm. the baby face, who's the he- hero, the referee and the crowd. And the crowd. And the crowd is the fourth character. And so the rest of the players, if you want to play in our game, you do not have to be a wrestler. You can be in the crowd. So then we have each of the wrestlers come forward and give a promo telling the crowd why they should be the champion. And then the crowd, with boos and cheers, decides if that wrestler is a heel or a face. Oh, interesting. So then um, we, uh, we hand out... Uh, poster board and markers and stuff to the crowd and say, why don't you make a sign for your favorite wrestler? Cause based on what you just seen. And then mm-hmm. we pair the wrestlers off. Dan and I pair the wrestlers off and we say, okay, you're going to be wrestling this person. You're going to be winning, but they're going to take 60% of the match. And we teach them how a professional wrestling match works, which is how all fighting works. Uh, cinematic mm-hmm. fighting. So I'm going to do this really quick, but I want you to think about Infinity War, about the last Infinity War movie. You saw it, right? Okay. I want you to think about the fight with Thanos. Okay. Okay. This is how a professional wrestling match works. It's divided into five chapters. The first chapter is called The Shine. During The Shine, the hero is winning. Okay. Because he is a better wrestler. Mm -hmm. Second part is called The Cutoff. This is where the hero makes a mistake or the villain cheats to gain control of of the match. The third or the third part of the match is called the heat. And the heat is when the villain is in control of the match, beating up the hero. And the reason it's called the heat is because it is heating up the crowd. It's getting the crowd angry because they want to see the hero win. Mm -hmm. Then there's the fourth part is called the comeback, which is when the hero gets their second wind. Mm -hmm. And then finally there's the finish, which is the end of the fight. Yeah. Yeah. You think about that Thanos fight. I can identify each part of those things, including mm-hmm. the comeback, which is when Captain America picks up Mjolnir. Yeah. Right? Yep. Or no, 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 no. Um, the, the, the comeback is when all of the Marvel Universe shows up. Right. That's the comeback. We still don't know how the fight's going to go, but we know that the heroes have the advantage now. Yep. Right. And that is how all cinematic fight scenes work. You will, you Craig, it's diehard. It's diehard. You will never (laughs) be able to see another movie and watch a fight scene without thinking about the shine, the cutoff, the heat, the comeback and the finish. Cause that's how cinematic. Or did you, or did you, where do those terms come from? Because they come from professional wrestling. Interesting. There is a whole lexicon of professional wrestling jargon that, that wrestlers use to communicate to each other so that the audience doesn't know what they're saying. Isn't that something? Because the, uh, so, and this is why I encourage all GMs to watch two things, to watch professional wrestling, which will teach you how to tell a story with a fight. Mm-hmm. Because the, uh, my friend Michael Kahn says, um, the story of a professional wrestling match is the story of a wrestling match that turns into a fight. 
Okay. <laughs> right. Can you expand on that? I, I think I know what you mean, but I'm not sure. So, so, so Michael Khan is responsible for this. It, it, it's, it's all him. So I'm going to give him credit. So a professional wrestling match starts off with the two people wrestling, right? They're doing legitimate, like by the rules. Cause re- professional wrestling, despite what modern wrestling teaches you actually has rules. And one of the rules is no closed fists. Mm-hmm. Right. That's one of the rules of professional wrestling. And the reason that professional wrestling works is because eventually the heel is going to throw a punch. And that's funny. Right. And that's when the wrestling match turns into a fight. Into a fight. That's great. Right? That's great. So, um, so that's the first thing is to watch professional wrestling. It'll teach you how to tell stories with a fight scene because that's what wrestling is about. It'll also tell you, show you because I tell people when I when I pitch when I go to cons and I pitch our, our professional wrestling thing, I'm like, do you like stories of, of good versus evil? Mm-hmm. Do you like stories that resolve in a in an epic fight between two people with a prize that both of them want? Do you like the story of dynastic feuds that go down generations? <laughs> then you are already a fan of professional wrestling. You just don't know it yet. So that's the first thing. The second thing I tell GMs to watch is soap operas. Interesting. Pick really? a soap opera. Just pick one. It doesn't matter which. I mean, some of them are better than others, right? But pick one and just watch it for a week. And what you will learn is how to do character development, how to do how to do serial storytelling, how to dr- drag a story out. Yeah. <laughs> Like you could watch eventually you'll get to the point where you just need to watch Monday and Friday. <laughs> right. It's the only things you need to watch. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's again, it's, it's soap operas. Um, like the actress gets pregnant. Okay. Um, you know, the actor gets in a skiing accident. Okay. What do we do? And so soap opera writers are writing every day. That's amazing. Just yeah. every day writing an hour of television. And um, they have writers who are in charge of characters. And then you have one person who's in charge of everything. What does that sound like? Yeah. Yeah, it's very – I've never thought about this, John. That's very interesting. I mean, I've read some of your stuff about pro wrestling, but the soap opera thing is really interesting. That's that's cool. Um, so, so does that mean I can come out of the closet and say I like watching telenovelas with my wife? Oh, dude. Yeah. <laughs> just research. Oh, yeah. Have you seen the YouTube channel Telenovelas Are Hell? No. Okay, just do a Google search for telenovelas or hell. I will. I will. I, I um, You know what else I get sucked into? Um and this is this is nobody's listening right now, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> it, 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 and so my wife's embarrassed because she she loves the Real Housewife stuff, right? Um, okay. And she and she's embarrassed by that. And and the first thing I tell her is like, honey, I, I watched every episode of Smallville, and that was a terrible show. And I hate. I watched all of it. And I said, it's okay to have just trash TV. It's okay just to have, you know, I watched most of the Flash show, which was terrible too. Um, it's okay to have those how, things. How dare you? I know, I know. I'm making friends right now. I, I was um, really, I was a really big fan of the Supergirl TV show. I yeah. love the Supergirl TV it, show. They were doing some really good stuff with it. But what always happens to me, this is going to be a total tangent. And what happens to me with these damn shows is like they see all of them seem to start off strong. And then, then they just like, like the Flash show just took a right turn on me. And I was just like, 
it get to the same point each time where it's like, I, I don't care what happens now. I don't care what happens to any of you anymore. I used to love all of you so much, and now I don't care. It's because um, the show goes on too long. Yeah, exactly. It, exactly. it reaches its natural end, and the network goes, here's a truck full of money. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's too bad. It's too bad. But no, I agree that uh, Supergirl on one. Now, the, what I keep hearing, and I don't know if you've been watching this, I've heard the new Batgirl is phenomenal. Um, I haven't the seen. The first season was, first season was terrible. Um, all, borderline unwatchable. Um, but everybody tells me that it, that, that they've re, uh, reinvented itself. But anyway, um, so my wife watches these things. And, you know, um, I, 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 I catch myself like I'm in the kitchen making a sandwich. And next thing I know, I'm eating the sandwich on the couch. Next thing I'm watching the second episode, and the third episode. And it's a lot of what you talked about with soap operas, though, right? Is Because the producers are creating soap operas with these reality TV That's, shows. That's I, what those are. Yes. As I was going to say, they are writing a soap opera. Yep. Because yep. so one of my favorite wrestlers, and if you're ever going to read a book about professional wrestling, you should read Mick Foley's book, um, uh, uh, Mick Foley's book, uh, which is uh, Have a Nice Day. <laughs> nice. Um, and it, it makes sense once you read it. Mick Foley uh, got a degree in communications and smart guy got yeah, into professional wrestling because he loved it. And uh, uh, his book about pro wrestling is fantastic. He wrote a second book called um, uh, The Real World is Faker Than Pro Wrestling. <laughs> and uh, and he was talking about how uh, he was on a real he was like on a reality TV show. And he was like, I'm getting more direction than I did when I was a wrestler. Isn't that something? Because reality TV shows are scripted, mm -hmm. directed, acted. Um, the 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 people involved negotiate for what their characters will and will not do. Yep. It's a soap opera with yep. the professional wrestling illusion of, oh, this is totally real. Right. This is yep. totally real. I'm like, you know what? I've been watching professional wrestling for 50 years. I can tell when someone is working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, But it's fascinating when I'm sitting there watching those shows with her because what I find myself doing is – is my is that like that storytelling research that you just talked about that that ability like why I, I have no idea who any of these people are but suddenly I care about what's happening right now and I find that interesting mm -hmm. that 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 a writer and a producer and director is able to hook me and draw me in like that um, and especially when it's being done on the fly in a, in a lot of respects. So that meme comes up on social media, which is uh, uh, poorly describe your job. Or whatever it is. And my answer is people pay me to make stuff up or people pay me to lie to them. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> because I'm I that's my job. And and uh in the play dirty book and play dirty two, it opens with an essay called The Magician, which is uh where where I make the analogy that the GM is a magician. He makes you they make you believe in things that aren't real. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and more than that, GMs use sleight of hand and they use like all the techniques that a magician does. Cause I'm, I am not an, even an amateur magician. I can do a couple card tricks, but I love magic. And so I study magic. I study how they, how tricks work. I can tell you when I watch people, I'm like, Oh, they're using, they're using rough, you know, rough and smooth. They're using, you right, know, yeah, I can, I can use yeah, jargon. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just that I don't have the dexterity to do it. Right. But which is why I love, uh, have you seen the Penn and Teller Foolish show? It's one of the best ever, man. It um, is the best game show 
oh, ever. It, yeah, it's phenomenal. And and it, a big part of it is because the two of those people are two of the greatest people to have walked this planet for, for different reasons. Yeah. Um, they're just two wonderful human beings, uh, Penn and Teller are. And uh, yeah, that's a phenomenal. I, I used to be a magician uh, way back when. Um, so it's even more fun for me to watch because a lot of my heroes, uh, you know, when I was was very much into magic, uh, come on that show. But yeah, it's a phenomenal game show. Phenomenal game show. Watching Teller's face when something is really good mm-hmm. is just watching his face overcome with joy. Pure joy. Joy, yep. pure childish yep. joy. And a I always tell people, I always point people at um, one of the, the, a couple of the magicians that have come on have been very young. Mm-hmm. And one of the magicians that came on and, and, uh, and Penn said, Teller wants me to tell you that you're better than he was when he was your age. And, and you're going to be deal. amazing. Yeah. Like, that's a big deal. How, how, how is it, how is it like to be an eight year old kid to have two people that you, you know, admire Telling mm-hmm. you, you're better than me. You're going to be awesome. Don't stop. Keep going. Right. That's that's got to be. Amazing. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it is very much well agreed upon that that uh, Teller is the most knowledgeable person in magic um, that I mean, he, he has consumed everything and understands everything and just an incredible thinker uh, in magic. Did, did you hear about what he did with the Houdini journals? I did not. So he owns Houdini's jur- magic journals. Wow. Okay. And, and he was backstage and Penn comes in and he's like, and he's looking at these and he tellers holding one of these antique books with a ballpoint pen and he's writing in them. And tellers like, what are you doing? You have, you have Houdini's, you know, handwritten, you know, magical journals where he's all of his thoughts. And teller says, I'm adding value. pretty amazing <laughs> that's funny <laughs> that's funny um so uh john is there um stuff that you did not make that you're enjoying right now whether it be board games video games other role-playing games um is there stuff that you've been consuming recently that um that you've really enjoyed i am having a huge amount of fun uh playing borderlands 3 with my brother oh nice uh i'm a big fan of borderlands 3 i'm it's kind of funny because my brother is an Oregon hippie and uh, I'm a Midwestern, you know, liberal, you know, so um, both of us have very strong opinions about guns. Right. Uh, which, you know, uh, you know, alienated half the audience right there. Uh, <laughs> you don't even know what my opinion on guns is and I've alienated your. Right? I guarantee you, you, you've done it. <laughs> right. I've done it. Right. But my brother, who is an, uh, an Oregon hippie, he has very strong opinions about guns. And when I told him, I said, let's play Borderlands. He, he, he lives, you know, there and I live here. And, and he was like, I want to play. I want to play games together with you. And I was like, great. So I said, we should play Borderlands because it's fun. And he's like, isn't that the gun game? I'm like, yeah, it's like, but it's, it's not what you think. Right. <laughs> and so we started playing. He's like, oh, this is awesome. There's oh, a gun that fun. makes guns. It's a gun that <laughs> shoots guns. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, because the guns in Borderlands, it, it's gun porn, right? But none of the guns are realistic. They're these fa- fantastic. There's guns that, that shoot guns. There's guns that grow legs and run around and shoot things. There's, there's, uh, there's a gun that shoots swords that explode <laughs> into other swords that explode, right? 
<laughs> That's phenomenal. So, you know, so we're, and I, I, I'm a really big fan of the Borderlands series of games and, uh, and I'm a big fan of them because I'm a big fan of the wit and the humor mm-hmm. and, um, and, uh, uh, and the heart of the games. The games have a yeah. lot of heart. Yeah. And so it's not me playing, uh, what is it? Um, where I just run around shooting people in the head. Right, right. There, yeah, right. there's those other layers there that are bringing joy to you as you play yeah. it. Plus, and I would imagine be, connecting with your brother is a big deal. And connecting with my brother is a big deal. We're also playing a lot of State of Decay 2. I'm not familiar with that. That is uh, a really fun zombie survival game where you're not playing a single character, you're playing a community. Mm. And so you choose members of the community based on their skills to go out and scavenge for things. And, and who you invite into the compu- community is important. Mm-hmm. Because not only do their skills contribute to the community, but their personalities can clash or get along. And it it's State of Decay 2 is is really I, I have a lot of fun with it because again, it's zombie survival, which is yep. fine, but it's about people. Yep. yep. And it's about it reminds them. me of Dead of Winter, um, which yeah, is a so phenomenal If board you game. like Dead of Winter, State of Decay is Dead of Winter the video game. Interesting. Interesting. So, and yeah. it's it's a really the, all of the DLC for it is free. Oh, I might have to check so that out. So check check it out. It's it's really I will. Fun. I will. Well, geez, John, um, I can't thank you enough, my friend, for coming on. Awesome. It was a, a real joy. Now, obviously, I'm going to link to all of the stuff that we talked about um, so people can get their hands on um, Seven Seas, especially, guys. You got to check this thing out. And one, one quick plug I'll give is even if you never play Seven Seas, I will argue that the GM section of that second edition book is worth the price of the book, like, even if you never run the game. That's um, very generous. I think it's phenomenal. I really, really do. Um, but we'll have links to all of that. But um, for people that want to get more John in general, where are good places for them to go? You can go to my YouTube channel where I'm the real John Wick. Because I am. <laughs> the first movie is biography. It is. Uh, but the second and third are. They, they, they kind of went off on their own. So um, and they weren't Russian. They were Lithuanian gangsters. Okay, good. And it was a pencil. (laughs) But other than that, uh, you can go to The Real John Wick on YouTube. Uh, I'm also The Real John Wick on Twitter or either Wicked. I I think I'm Wicked Thought on Twitter. And uh, go to Chaosium, chaosium chaosium.com, where you can get not only the 7C role-playing game, which is fantastic. Yay, I'm patting my own back. Uh, You can also (laughs) get Pendragon. You can also get... um, Call of Cthulhu, and you can get RuneQuest, where I didn't get to talk about, which is the Bronze Age fantasy role-playing game that asks the question, what if every character in the world, from the farmer out in the field, to the sailor, to the prince, like every character in the world, what if every character in the world was a 20th level cleric? <laughs> I'll tell you what, man, it's impressive. Um, really, the stable that Chaosium has put together now. Um, it uh, they've really have diversified a lot and uh, brought brought some just amazing games uh, under their umbrella. We also have big plans once I'm done with the once I'm done with the Seven C Kickstarter stuff. There's a couple of projects that um, that I'm working on that I can't talk about. Sure, but uh, they're. One of the things that that I talk to Chaosium a, a lot about is um, is diversifying the audience and getting like more of the uh, smaller game indie whatever indie means. I don't even know what that means. Hey, you know who the most successful indie filmmaker of all time is? 
George Lucas. No question. He's indie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so, um, but anyway, yeah, about doing more, you know, uh, uh, kind of like embracing uh, Greg's idea of what is the weirdest damn thing we can do with a role playing game. Yeah, and, that's uh, great. So, those will be coming out soon. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, then, uh, when uh, that next phase happens, we'll have to come on and talk about it. I'd be happy to. All right, wonderful. For those of you that stuck around all the way to the end, I appreciate you doing that. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads Oh boy, you've perfectly captured my podcast idea, which is let's let's talk about <laughs> let's just talk about stuff, man. This is just fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Yay! Um, can't thank you enough for making the time, man. So I asked this right. of everybody: Have you seen Breaking Bad? <laughs> no, it's the best television show ever made. And everybody, and I don't know what my problem is, John, because people like I trust have told me that and for for whatever reason like i have i've got i've probably have watched the first five episodes like six times and i don't know what my freaking problem is and i just what i need to do is just work through the damn thing yeah because the first I, season too many is people I trust. super slow is that what it is the first season is super slow and then there's the climax of the first season mm-hmm. which will blow your fucking head off <laughs> okay yeah there is um um the reason that i like it so much is because there is uh well I can't I can't there there's there's a there's things that happen in the show that once sure. you've done watching it we should talk about because um there's a reason I think it's the best written TV show ever uh and and a lot of it has to do with stuff that's not evident Oh cool all right that's it uh, now I got a good excuse to get you to come back on so I've And got then homework. and then you can watch Better Call Saul um which I've also heard is very very good very different that's very very good yeah yeah, um, but uh, uh, same. What is it? Uh, overlapping characters, right? Saul's in both. Both, yeah. It's a prequel. Uh, it's a prequel to. Uh, oh, Breaking nice! Bad. I don't think I realized it's a prequel, but yeah, I, it's very embarrassing because it's it's um, it's my version of uh, I've never seen Star Wars because like so many people that I've talked to are like Craig, you know, have you seen this? I'm like, no. And they're like, we know you would love it. Like, you would absolutely love it. I gotta get through my. It's a show about morality. Burn. Yeah, I gotta burn through it and just do it. All right, I'm gonna bring us back. Well, shit, dude, that was awesome. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> oh, no, throw me in the briar patch. Make me talk about role-playing games. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, so I, I might want to bridge this with kind of uh, John's John's first big break story, and then we'll we'll roll right into Legend of Five Rings. Does that make okay. sense to you? That's it. That makes okay. sense to me. Great. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we talk to the Origins award-winning designer, John Wick. Now, John is best known for... It's my Alexa. It's my daughter. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> Kids. 
This is why I didn't have them. So I could do podcasts. <laughs> so you can do podcasts. So my daughter has she's she's seven and she has just figured out uh, how much fun the game store is. And partially because if my child shows any interest in a game, I, of course, will buy it <laughs> because yep. I've got a, as big a problem as anybody. So um, so I'm going to go back to John. Welcome to the third floor. Sorry. Sure. So, John, welcome to the third floor. still here wow um well the episode is over but if you're bored why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month yeah you can just scroll down scroll down and yeah get the link it's patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible don't you want to join the other floorheads on the patreon discord anyway Thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.